0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of last year.
1: Welcome now to Access Utah. The title of a talk by Dr. Kay Turner is The Plenitude of the Ephemeral, or Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. She says in the age of the nanosecond... Folklore studies claim a perspective on the critical importance of the short-lived as observed in numerous traditional forms such as memorial altars, henipated Yemen brides, and evaporative moments such as the traces left by marginalized queer encounters or the reformulation in art of Mormon legend by local Provo artist Brian Hutchison. Kay Turner is a folklorist and artist working across disciplines including writing, music, performance, and folklore, she's adjunct professor in performance studies at NYU, past president of the American Folklore Society, and her books include Beautiful Necessity, The Art and Meaning of Women's Altars and Transgressive Tales, Queering the Grimms. Kate Turner, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Tom.
2: Wonderful to be here.
1: And I didn't I didn't add in there that you uh you were in a band.
2: Yes. <laughs> and I was telling you earlier that one of our best shows was in Salt Lake City when we were touring in the uh, early 90s. Um, Had a blast. R- remind me of the name of the band. Name of the band is Girls in the Nose. Okay, the Girls in the Nose.
1: Punk rock, all punk, the way. Punk rock, so, yeah. all right. How, how was that? You toured for a while? And, uh...
2: We toured for a while, mm-hmm. yeah. The band was active from 85 to 96. Yeah. Yep, yeah. yeah
1: so uh, so punk rock and uh, i guess all the while you were pursuing your studies in folklore you know.
2: i had finished my phd mm-hmm. at ut austin this band came out of um uh austin texas and uh, i had Co-founded with other folklorists, a business there called Texas Folk Life, and we were a non-profit arts organization promoting, preserving, presenting the folk arts and folk life of Texas. So I was doing that kind of work, and but I'd always been in music I, from the time I was like a kid. Uh, I'd had bands in high school, in college. So um, I wanted to start up a band again. And yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah
1: now you've have you studied performance
2: as it relates to folklore? I think the well, there, there's some connections there there are some connections there it's um it might be a little bit obscure, but um when I entered u t austin um in the late seventies, it was at the height of what was called the performance school of folklore and there were um, a number of professors uh, at UT at that time who were looking at performance as it related to folklore. So I, that was kind of my training. Um, also, I was a performer. I was interested in performance. And um, so it all worked out very well for me. Really. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I want to talk about folklore in general, then narrow down to the, this very fascinating topic, the plenitude of the ephemeral. Um, so uh, read a read statement that you have made uh, i guess a few times um <laughs> uh, about folklore and the importance of folklore um and you say that people come up to you in parties what do you do polite conversation you say folklorist their response
2: is oh isn't that's nice <laughs> <laughs> to which you respond what do to you respond? which I always respond it's not that nice mm-hmm. you know it's necessary but you know it's it can be very prickly and it can be very you know um, aggressive in its own way it can be uh, it can criticize um, it. it Folklore, you know, covers a range of behaviors and expressions, um, and uh, tradition in and of itself is not always, you know, the nicest thing that comes down the pike from, you know, from generation to generation. Um, it can solidly be the thing that really critiques the dominant culture, for example, mm-hmm. Um uh, sort of says back to the dominant culture, back to elitism, back to capitalism. No, this is not, you know, this is not what we do. This is not what we think. Mm-hmm. We do it differently. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so it always is kind of shocking, <laughs> you know, to these very nice people who are trying to make <laughs> cocktail conversation when I sort of say, well, no, it's not that nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're you're saying this uh, folklore can provide a very needed critique. Uh, what else does folklore do?
2: well i think that you know folklore really does give us a sense of um continuity it probably it's you know one of its most Profound places of, um, of expression is within the family, within the small community, within, you know, sort of dedicated communities like anything from, you know, a sports team to, um, a sorority to a religious group. Um, wherever people have something in common and they begin a process of creating, you know, ways to understand their connection to each other, and they often do that through things like songs and, you know, um, sayings or, you know, costumes or, you know, um, dramas, you know, lots of artistic forms that kind of come up out of a a sense of belonging. In a way, so folklore is very, very important, and it's everywhere. Um, You know, I had one of those talks just yesterday with um, the guy who was driving me in Salt Lake City to pick up my my rent car, and he said, "Oh, is folklore the Renaissance times, the medieval times?" Mm -hmm. And you know, again, you know, you just find yourself in the back seat of a Mm -hmm. van going. No, no, it is not. It is not the Renaissance times. It is right now. Mm -hmm. And I said, I said, I'm sure there's folklore in your life. Tell me something about you and I'll tell you, you know, the folklore of it. Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, well, I'm Mexican and my grandmother, you know, always did this thing with eggs over our chest to Mm -hmm. clean, you know, it's called Olympia. You know, it's a a folk remedy for, you know, sort of getting rid of bad spirits and bad things. It helps you heal. And I said, well, you've got major folklore going on right there. And Mm -hmm. I said, it's you know, it's living tradition. Mm -hmm. It's what's happening now. It's ways that people, you know, pull together around different aspects of this tremendously complex world that we live in.
1: Uh this might be a good time to bring in uh this before we get into the ephemeral. Um I was fascinated by a talk that you gave to a conference in uh, Germany. Um about uh refugees. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to to pull a very current uh, theme. Um and you were talking about about uh, it's kind of complex but but very interesting. You're talking about art which critiques journalism about refugees and then how folklore it's, can, can critique the art. And, and it gets it gets into some very interesting uh, themes about how we uh, view uh, refugees through whatever lens we're looking at, whether it be journalism or art or, or folklore. Uh-huh. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about that, the art that you talked about, that you talked about an artist uh, called Phil Collins, uh, how to make uh-huh. a refugee.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Interesting art. Maybe we could yeah, there. yeah.
2: Um, yeah, l- let me give you just a little bit of background. I was asked to speak at a conference. Um, we have a, the American Folklore Society has a sister organization in Europe called CIF, the International Society for Folklore and Ethnology. And they have their, you know, um, they have a conference every other year. And so they pick a theme. And the theme in twenty. Seventeen uh, had to do with migrant the whole migrant crisis in Europe. Um, and we were asked, uh, several of us who were the keynote speakers, were asked to reflect on an amazing website that I encourage all of the listeners to go to. It's called Refugee Republic. Refugee Republic has a hyphen in between those two words. It was made by three artists from the Netherlands. And it is a wonderful, very, very um, extensive, you you have to be willing to spend a few hours with this website, because it's a very extensive treatment of a number of trips that these three artists made to a Kurdish refugee camp in northern Iraq. A refugee camp that was established about ten years ago in an old palace area where Saddam Hussein had had a summer home. And it was turned into a refugee camp. And What it gives you when you go into it, you can go down different roads through the camp. You know, you can take the road of culture, you can take the road of economics, you can take the road of, you know, everyday life, and you can, there are wonderful interviews with people just doing what they do in refugee camps. So we were asked to respond to that, so... I went looking at various other artistic representations of refugees and the refugee crisis to sort of get a sense of what artists were saying about it, um, other than these artists who did Refugee Republic. Phil Collins had made a very interesting videotape also, um, I think it's available online, um, Called "How to Make a Refugee." This was one of the first things that I found because this was made in the end of the '90s. It was about the it was about refugees coming out of um, Bosnia and Serbia. And what he showed in the video it's a very interesting video of him making a video of a journalist interviewing a family that was in a refugee situation. So what he's looking at is the way the journalist is creating. A story about this family and the the climactic moment in it is that the journalist asked a young boy who had been shot to open his shirt and show his scars mm. to sort of you know to add you know kind of tragic flavor to the to the piece so you know so this is this is Phil Collins stepping away and saying hey this is how refugees are made you know by the media this is what what we're told, right? This is the picture we're given. And so from there, I went, you know, into other, looking at other artists, you know, who had done interesting projects. Um, But, you know, I thought that the most important thing that I said was that a lot of this artwork was a really good critique of journalism because journalism tended, as that uh, journalist did um, in the Phil Collins piece, tends to, you know, telescope a story, necessarily, because they're journalists, and tries to find the soundbite or the the thing that will capture the audience's imagination and sell some product down the line, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, in this particular case, um, you know, it, it seemed to me that journalists in this era that we live in have focused in large part on the journey. What you read about in various accounts of migrants in, um, you know, coming out of Syria or coming out of Iraq or, or, or other places, um, and trying to get into Europe, is that they have these, you know, horrendous experiences crossing the Mediterranean. You know, they drown and they suffer and that kind of thing. But what journalism tends to give us is a sense that they are going to get to the other side and, It's going to be better. But in fact, we know that it's not better on the other side. And we also know that refugees, you know, for the most part, endure refugee status for anywhere from, you know, three years to 15 years and sometimes longer. So the whole picture that's painted, you know, by the journalist was being critiqued by the artist. But then as a folklorist, I was also kind of trying to say, well, you know, on the other hand, we have to engage more specifically, you know, with the people themselves to let them tell their stories of their experience. And there were a few artists who were doing that. But I think that it's even more important now for folklorists to take a stand and, you know, um, open up our ability to work with people and to work across Boundaries, especially, you know, to help people understand the experiences that people are going through in this, you know, incredible period of our world history where we have, you know, close to, you know, 65 million people in constant motion right now, you know, that's a huge number of people. And it's not just in Europe, you know, it's all over the world. Um, People are having trouble, you know, being home Mm -hmm. and finding a home and which is central to, you know, the the idea of home is so central to the folklore project that, you know, it's just, um, yeah, it's really important for folklore to have a, a role in sort of giving a sense of, you know, how home is made. And i want to follow up with that. Uh, let's take a let's take a break right now and then
1: uh, we do have a, a caller John hold on John Moab is, is going to ask a question. Hold on through the break John and we'll get to you right after the right after the break.
0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Cash Arts presents the National Broadway Tour of Something Rotten. The story of Nick and Nigel Bottom, two brothers who are desperate to write a hit play in the shadow of the Renaissance's biggest playwright, William Shakespeare. February 12th and 13th at 7.30pm. Ticket information at casharts.org. I'm Robin Young. When Smilf's creator Frankie Shaw started filming her show in South Boston, people were wary till, like one man, they realized her roots there. And who's your mom? Like Eileen Doherty. Oh my God, Eileen
2: used to be my babysitter. We've hung out when you were a baby. Give me a hug.
0: Well, now she's facing claims she was abusive on the set. She'll respond next time, here and now.
1: Join us today at noon here on Utah Public Radio. This is Craig Jessup, Dean of the King College of the Arts at Utah State University. UPR is everywhere you are, with classical music programming, news and information statewide through their 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org, and through the new online app. UPR is only a push of the button away. This is Alec Baldwin. Documentaries take hard work.
2: Every single thing in the film is intentional.
1: Hyper-intentional. Right. And commitment. You don't want to be in love again and have a passion? Oh, no. Romance? No, I
2: want to make the best documentary in the world. That's it.
1: Sheila Nevins from HBO and Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. Their latest project is The Vietnam War for PBS on Here's the Thing from WNYC. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of last year.
1: Thanks for being with us for Access Utah. We're talking about folklore. uh, My guest is Kay Turner. She is a folklorist and artist working across disciplines including writing, music, performance, and folklore. She says in the age of the nanosecond, folklore studies claim a perspective on the critical importance of the short-lived. As observed in numerous traditional forms. we're going to get into talking about that. We have been talking about uh, folklore critiquing art, which critiques journalism about uh, about the refugees. A uh, very interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about that and and this uh, this concept of home and how uh, folklore delineates what home means. I want to talk about that as well. We have um, John and uh, Moab who has uh, called us. Uh, John, uh, go ahead with your question or comment.
3: Well, hi. Um, good morning. Uh- Something you said got me thinking, and which might be a dangerous thing at nine in the morning, still on my first cup of coffee. What um, you said, you used to be a, a punk rock musician. <laughs> and so I got to thinking, you know, what's the relationship between music and folk art and folklore? And, 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 you know, a lot of times you'll see someone, an accomplished, trained musician, a Bach, take a folk. Tune and turn it into something, you know, much more interesting, or, or not even, I shouldn't say much more interesting, different, something different. Um, also, if you look at the, the lyrics of a lot of the music coming out of young people these days, um, they're upset about the situation, you know, the, the 50s they were singing about, you know, you know your burgers and the Chevy and, you know, the girl you're going steady with, and by the by the 60s and 70s they were singing about ending the war and say crooked administrations and you know Mm -hmm. politics and then it just got into like the 80s where they were just screaming about frustration and I don't know where you fit into that Uh, (laughs) always screaming about frustration if you mentioned when what decade you were a a punk musician I used to live with a bunch of them Uh, they're not bad except they'll drink all your beer (laughs) so if you could speak to that how how music fits in with uh, folklore and with uh, folk art.
1: Thank you, John. Appreciate the question. Very interesting.
2: Well, John, I I probably should confess that, you know, the attitude was punk. The music was rock. Um, So I didn't, I wasn't really a part of the original, you know, punk punk explosion of the late uh, 70s. Um, But I think you've, asked a really good question to me, simply because music has always been a part of the way that I, as a folklorist, have kind of come to my ideas and thinking about folklore. Um, I think that the first thing that I ever knew about folklore was music. My father taught me traditional tunes when I was a kid, and you know some of those I still sing, and I really appreciate your sense that... Um, you know, that a classical musician, for example, can take an old tune like, I just heard a, an amazingly beautiful rendition of O oh, Susanna um, that was done by a classical musician in New York City. Um, that That music is kind of, that's our language for feeling each other out and feeling what's important to each other. So that's, you know, also what folklore is, also, very much about the folklore the you know there's a whole category of folklore called folk music, and many of my colleagues and you know uh, here in the United States and throughout the world that 's what they study. they study music and the history of vernacular music, and they interview and Work with musicians, I did that for a long time with you know traditional fiddle players in uh, in Texas, traditional conjunto um, Mexican musicians in texas um, i've worked with you know Arab musicians in Brooklyn over the past number of years. Um, I did a big show in Brooklyn called Brooklyn Macomb after September 11th because I knew that the musicians in Brooklyn who came from Syria and Lebanon and Yemen were, you know, not able to work because they were being prejudiced after September 11th. And so we had a big show that featured them and got people thinking about, again, about the humanity of people that, that music can really demonstrate. So, yeah, I mean, it's... It's a big deal. Music is the big deal. It really is. Yeah.
1: Thanks for the question, John. Before we leave this uh, issue of uh, refugees and the depiction of refugees in in, in art and journalism and folklore, um, I want to talk about a um, a piece by Ai Weiwei, who's he's dealing nowadays with refugees, right? That's, uh, that's yeah, what he's focusing yeah. the art on. And, and a piece called Laundromat. Right, right. Tell us about
2: that. Ai Weiwei. Um for those of you who, who don't know um is a very very famous Chinese dissident artist he um he was imprisoned in China for his work critiquing um Uh, The regime there, the communist regime. Um, He lived in New York City for a number of years. He went back to China. He got himself into trouble again. Um, He's um, a a very, very uh, provocative artist and one who is very, very dedicated to social justice. So he did a project a couple of years ago. He went... um, he went to a refugee camp that had been moved. Now, one of the things that happens with refugee camps is that, you know, some of them are very stable, like this one that I was mentioning in Iraq that has Kurdish refugees in it and has been functioning for um, more than 10 years. But sometimes refugee camps come up and they, you know, they disappear quite quickly. And Ai Weiwei went to a, a camp in um In Macedonia, um, and he, the camp had been abandoned, and he collected all of the refuse that was in the camp. All of the, you know, the clothing, the shirts, the pants, the dresses, the underwear, the socks, the shoes, the backpacks, the little toys, the things, you know, the keychains. And he took them, you know, um, He took them and he laundered all of them and he hand pressed them. He ironed them. He made them all very, you know, sort of clean and beautiful again. And then in a gallery in New York City, he, the entire gallery was covered with all of these, you know, all of these pieces that he had collected from the refugee camp. So he did that as a way of, you know, as a way of marking, um the 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 transitory state of people's lives in refugee camps but he was trying to sort of take the refuse of it the refuse of that transience and remake it into art so that you could see when you came into the gallery the thing that he did i thought quite interestingly um was that he showed you through a color And pattern grid that he did so he could put all the red pants together Mm -hmm. and all the yellow shirts together, you know, in some way so that when you came into the gallery, you saw the pattern of these people's lives as having some holistic presentation. Mm -hmm.
1: Your point uh, in this presentation was that you know, art can be important. Art can can tell the story in a, a new way, give t- new perception to the, right. To the problem. Right. Right. Um, but it all depends on how the how the viewer, how the audience is taking this, how right. seeing this. That's right. very important.
2: I think that's very important. And, and the thing that I did go on to say, I mean, I appreciated the Ai Weiwei piece, but of course the it was empty of the people who wore those clothes. Mm-hmm. Right. They were gone, and he could never find them. He could only find what was left. And that says one thing. But there was another project that I also referenced in that talk, which is an ongoing project along the border in Arizona, which is the University of Arizona has um, a forensic anthropology department. And there are some people in that department who've, you know, come together with photographers and artists in in Arizona to create a project whereby they they take all of the leftovers that they find along the border and and the um, the detritus that's left from people's death who don't make it across the Sonoran Desert um, coming up from uh, from the south. If they die there, they take that stuff and they. And they do a kind of forensic analysis of it trying to identify people so that they can then go back into Mexico or Colombia or Nicaragua or wherever the person has come from and be able to give the family a sense that the person has died, mm. that these are their remains, these are the things that they left, so they're doing to me that's an art project too, because it was um what they did was they and this was an, in this one ravine in um along the border in arizona um they found a place where, like hundreds of backpacks had just been abandoned, and so there was a stream of backpacks, and they photographed that. Then they photographed in inside the installation of the artwork, they created a kind of river, you know, with um, you know, with projectors, a river that sh- that they then superimposed those backpacks onto, and you walked through the river and had the you know had the backpacks along the side of you. And then that led you into a room where the actual backpacks were all Mm. up on the wall. Mm. It was very moving. It was very moving. And, you know, the whole, I mean, the backpack, I could talk about that for days.
3: Mm. Just
2: put backpacks. Mm. You know, backpacks in our era have come to mean something that, you know, I don't think any of us ever thought they would who carried Mm. a little backpack and went camping as a, you know, as a kid, you know.
1: Yeah, certainly. Twenty, has a,
2: thirty years ago,
1: a big a- impact, an arti- artifact. I guess yeah. you can call it that, like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you have you have said the, the the folk themselves are able to tell their stories, and of course that gets us into the folklore of this. Yeah. Um. There, there was a a woman you you talked about um who put images of her former home on her dress. Right. Right. That seems very powerful.
2: Right. Yeah. This is, so th- this was a woman um who uh was um a refugee from Iraq and from I think from Basra if I remember um and she was in a refugee camp an artist started working with women who um could embroider um memories and and so this woman had already been embroidering the her mosque her home, you know, she had little architectural drawings that she then, you know, she sketched onto her dress and embroidered those places onto her dress so that they would stay in memory. And mm-hmm. and also so that she um, could, you know, in, in a very, um, you know, kind of beautiful, compact way, carry her, you know, the town that she would never see again. She believed that she would never be able to go back Um and but she would keep it with her on her clothing, close to her, you know, as she went through mm-hmm. through her daily life.
1: Yeah, that's so poignant. To uh, kind of a, a a way to take some power, right? To yeah. To to, to reclaim something that maybe yeah. was lost. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. are some, what are some other ways that, uh, that people turn to folklore, use folklore uh, to to carry home carry their dwellings with them? Is a your sense of home is is very important, especially if you've lost your home.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that um, um, again, if we if we look at you know art making in particular, there's there's lots of references to ideas of home in um, in traditional music, um, even in traditional dance forms. But I think in art making, in actual material culture. Um, there are lots of reference points because people do take you know their particular you know um thing and they can remake it. they can remake a sense of home by taking the actual architectural form um There's a wonderful artist named beverly buchanan um she's now deceased and um uh She was from the South, and she became an artist late in life. She's kind of a, she, you'd kind of probably call her a cross between a, a a folk artist and a, a, a more conventional fine artist. She, she was trained, but she had, grown up poor in the south and she loved the architecture of the shotgun shack and you know the single pen house and the sort of you know uh, one room shack that she, that were part of her growing up and so um she a, as she went on to become an artist she started making these little miniature uh shotgun shacks and um And, uh, single pen houses and that kind of thing, and coloring them brilliantly, painting them, you know, red and yellow and green and, you know, bright colors and just, just beautiful, beautiful work. And that was her way of enlivening her sense of, you know, of her past, of, of her understanding of home that on the outside to the outsider looked like a poor circumstance. Um, but to her was, that's how I grew up, that's where I grew up those you know that those were my you know my people and my home and you know uh so i again, I think she was leveling a kind of you know uh leveling a little bit of a critique also back right, yeah
1: uh, let's take another break when we come back, I want to get into uh, talking about some of the themes of your talk here, the plenitude of the ephemeral, some very interesting things uh memorial altars, uh henipated Yemen brides and evaporative moments. We'll talk about a few of those themes more following this break. Next time on Philosophy Talk, identity politics. Slicing and dicing people by race, gender, religion. No wonder we're so divided. Identity politics isn't the problem, Ken. It's the solution. To what? To a society that marginalizes some identities while valorizing others. Why can't we all just get along? Identity politics next time on Philosophy Talk. Well, tomorrow morning at 4 a.m. here on Utah Public Radio. What does Utah Public Radio mean to you? You can answer that question by entering the annual UPR Art Mug Contest. We want to see your most creative interpretations and appreciations of UPR, our programming, or our station's home here in Utah. From now until Valentine's Day, we'll be accepting submissions, and then you'll all get to vote on your favorite design. The winner will be printed on this year's Spring Pledge Drive Mug. For more details, go to upr.org. And to submit, just send your designs to me, katie.swain at usu.edu.
3: The government shutdown is over, and President Trump will finally address the nation from inside the House chamber. Will party leaders settle on a plan for border security?
1: If we make a fair deal, the American people will be proud of their government. For proving
3: that we can put country before party. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Join me for NPR's special coverage of the 2019 State of the Union Address from NPR News.
1: Tuesday evening at 7, right here on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop. From Havana to Logan, Utah, tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and, of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of last year.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour is Dr. K. Turner. Dr. Turner says, In the age of the nanosecond, folklore studies claim a perspective on the critical importance of the short-lived. So I want to get into talking uh, about that. So uh, you give some examples, right? Folklore can respond... To this this uh, speedy age, the age of the nanosecond.
2: Right, right. <laughs>
1: um, so I want to talk about so, so memorial altars.
2: Mm-hmm. Tell me about this. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, well, I think for the listening audience, it, it might be um, worthwhile just simply just kind of as a point of rhetoric, really, um, just to sort of say that, you know, I think when people think of folklore and think of the work that folklorists do, they they think of us doing, um, you know, working on things that last for a long time. Um, Like the, you know, like the song that was carried down through your family, you know, Grandpa sang it and Grandma sang it and Dad sung it and I sing it and we've had that song in our family for, you know, 50 years or 75 years and that's folklore. And that is folklore. There's there's a, a major part of folklore and folklore study that is interested in things that are long-lasting, and um, especially vernacular traditions or traditions that come up out of people's um, uh, ways of living. Okay? So that's, I mean, that's kind of our bailiwick. That's what people, that's what we do. That's what we, you know... Um, in fact, I was telling Tom earlier that in uh, the van ride that I had to pick up my uh, rent car yesterday in Salt Lake City, the guy, you know, when he asked me what I did, and I said I was a folklorist, he, you know, he said, oh, you know, do you study the Renaissance times? <laughs> you know, and I said, no. I said, I do not. So, you know, I said, I study living traditions, things that are happening now. And so... um so, to unfix that idea that what folklore is all about and only about uh are things that are long lived, I wanted to sort of you know sort of move in a different direction toward our understanding of the folklore of the short lived um and uh and that's what my talk is about today um the The folklore of the short lived is as I'll discuss later on, it is very much connected with performances. Um, uh, ways that things that are performed can only be performed in moments. They can't, a performance can't go on for a long time. It can only happen in time. It starts, it happens, and it's over. And then it disappears. Right? So, the, the word ephemeral, um, uh, Comes from the Latin, um, and it refers to something that only lasts for a day. That's the meaning of the word. Mm Something that's ephemeral lasts for a day. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's equivalent in nature is the, is the mayfly. The mayfly is, you know, born in the morning, comes out of its larva, flies into the sun, has a great afternoon, and is dead by dinner. Hmm. And so uh, a mayfly is a classic example of, in, um, you know, in bug lore, you know, what would be called an ephemeral, an ephemeral uh, animal. Uh, so, so I just, I I got very interested in this idea of how the ephemeral and, and ephemerality, it's, you know, um, it, it's, it's expressive side could be used to kind of capture some of the things that happen in folklore that are performed, you know, so that something can change, so that something can be recognized, so that something, you know, can be, um, a gap can be crossed. So, uh, so for example, in, um, uh, in henna traditions, um, that are part of, um, uh, part of bridal traditions in the Muslim world, um, when you get married, you have a henna party with all of your female relatives and your fr- female friends, and you have a henna party, and all these beautiful decorations are painted on your hands and around your face and on onto your chest, and then the bridal outfit is put on the next day, and then the wedding takes place, and these particular henna um, decorations are, of course, going to fade. Henna is just a dye. It's a dye um, that fades over time um, and disappears, but the henna decorations that are made on a Yemen bride are meant to recognize that she's changing status. She's changing from single to married. She will never be single again. She will be married, and this this particular act of henna painting can perform that and recognize it, right? So... um when um i I live in New York City and I was present um, on september eleventh and um, it was uh, you know a terrible day um, a terrible day to experience and um it, it really um it, it kind of rendered i think um for those of us who especially who experienced it firsthand, a real sense of the ephemeral, you know, that you could be walking along, you know, on your way to the subway and look up and see an airplane, Mm -hmm. you know, flying into the World Trade Center and have that explode. That Those buildings, those two gigantic buildings became fragments. They became dust by the end of the day. Talk about something that only, you know, that only lived for one day, you know, in that particular moment in time. Um, So I, you know, but of course, what happened in New York and happened in many parts of the country, but it was profound in New York and at the Pentagon um, as well in Washington where the other um, plane hit um, was that these, uh, what are termed spontaneous memorials, you know, sort of came up. Um, And, I can only describe them by saying that a huge square in New York City which is which occupies, you know, four square blocks, it's a very famous square called Union Square. Um it was right on the it's on 14th Street which kind of is at the edge of downtown. Downtown is below 14th Street. Union Square kind of then begins um the East Village and the West Village and What happened there was that immediately, you know, people started taking the missing posters, the posters that went up all over the city of people who were missing. And families put up these pictures of all these people that never made it home that night. By the next day... And then, certainly the day after, by September 13th, most of those people were suspected to be dead. And so, suddenly, those pictures became the centerpieces of these memorial, um, these, these spontaneous memorials. And the thing that got me interested in them in particular was the way in which the ephemeral nature of those memorials could function to you know, to alleviate the emptiness that had been caused by the loss down at Ground Zero. So Ground Zero and Union Square were like the opposite of each other. Mm. Ground Zero was empty. It was a hole. It was filled with death. And this place started, Union Square and Washington Square Park and places throughout, you know, the five boroughs of, of New York City, they started to become settings for remembrance, settings for, you know, for trying to come to terms with what had occurred and to try to reinstall a sense of memory of these people who were now believed to be dead. Hmm. And so the things that were brought there were things that could be used to perform memory. These paper images, you know, of missing people, there are little mementos of them that families brought, little you know teddy bears and things of that nature, candles that were burned, um flowers that were that were deposited, all ephemeral things, mm-hmm. right so that's interesting that we, you know eventually there are then permanent
1: memorials, right public memorials right, yes, this is the beginning, I guess. this is something that can be done in the moment, be- yes, because of that human need to. To remember. Right, right,
2: right that's yeah. right. And what I think is very interesting, um, what happened... It, um, I've I've written about this uh, quite extensively, and one thing that I found very interesting in the research um, is that when Maya Lin did the Vietnam War Memorial, that, that was a sea change, Um in terms of how people responded to that memorial um people came and brought things they brought flowers they brought candles they brought mementos they brought the medals that those you know young men and women you know, should have had had they lived or that they had sent home in protest and said, you know, this war is not my war. Take these medals and, you know, throw them away. You know, various, you know, narratives around all this, you know, around uh, the, the dead of that war. And, you know, so... That place became a place where ephemerality and the permanent monument started to have a dialogue with each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they still, you know, that that memorial is, what, it's 25 years old now, Mm -hmm. I think. And they have collected, you know, something like two football fields where they have a storage area out in... Virginia or Maryland somewhere where they take all of these things that are deposited and they are if they're not completely things that decay like flowers they have kept them hmm. in storage.
1: What are people doing do you think? Is they, they come and they respond to you know, powerful memorial but they want to, they want to bring something what, right. what, what, what are they doing? Well they
2: come to the name you know mm-hmm. she, it, that was the f- that memorial had every name of every person mm-hmm. um and so they come and they find the name but because it's a sea of names you know um it's 50,000 names and so i think part of it is that when they find the name of the person that their loved one then they want to recognize that you know mm-hmm. moment of kind of coming to the place where that particular person Mm -hmm. is recognized and so the giving of something the performance of that recognition comes through you know the ephemeral stuff
1: and you see it on a smaller scale at uh, you know cemeteries yeah People come and bring things right. to, to to the headstone. Right. I guess that's a connection. You want
2: to? Well, that's probably connection? the oldest. Yeah, you know, that's probably where all of this started mm-hmm. because we can see in archaeological evidence, you know, that you know that people came to places of the dead and brought you know brought ephemeral things brought flowers and food and stuff to leave for the dead so that if the dead returned or if the dead needed something they'd have they'd, mm-hmm. they'd have something to eat right? right um and so yeah it's a you know Probably graveside um, memorials and remembrances that utilize ephemeral materials are very, very old. Hmm. And all of these other sort of things, you know, connect through, you know, what we would call kind of a spectrum of association, um, Graveside altars, memorials, roadside shrines, you know, things that you see when someone has, you know, had a car accident and, you know, people have put flowers and balloons and balloons are very interesting yeah. because they've <laughs> balloons are big. Yeah. <laughs> Now and you didn't see balloons twenty years ago, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So it's really interesting also to kind of you know work at tracing what starts to be the representative mm-hmm. thing. Teddy bears and balloons have really you know they they're moving up.
1: Yeah, and balloons, especially ephemeral. Uh, especially blo- balloons going to be gone. They're, per- pretty, they're pretty perfect. Pretty quick.
2: They're perfect.
1: But but for a per- uh, person, I guess it's it's that moment when they put it there. That 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 has meaning, right? Yeah. Knowing that yeah. the balloon's going to be gone right in a day or two. Right. Um, I want to before we just have a couple of minutes uh, left. I want to talk about um, this idea of uh, of altars, home altars, women's altars. Mm-hmm. You've written a whole book about it. Uh, yeah. So just maybe the just the, the the one or two minute version of that. <laughs> <laughs> we're coming down to the end.
2: <laughs> hmm. Well. Um, the one or two minute version of it is that uh, the home altar was the subject of my dissertation. Um, it's the it's the particular aspect of folklore that has you know been kind of my calling card, you know, for the past thirty years. It has it's a topic that has consistently um, um, interested in me. I found new ways to think about it you know new ways to um interpret it I've I've seen new things evolve through it such as you know the home altar you know was the thing that then gave me my interest in the you know in the memorials at September 11th so it's a connection through the idea that there's a place and it's a place that is particular for in the home altar, it's particular, I studied with Mexican-American women, who old women in South Texas who taught me the whole deal. Mm. Um, and they were wonderful. And they had it down because they understood that when they came to the little altars that they made, those were not institutional altars. That was not the Catholic Church. This is my altar. This is where I come to do my business with God and the saints and the virgin. And so what I came to understand about personal home altars made by Mexican-American women was that it was a place where they got to show what was important to them and to get the business done that they needed to get done with the allies that they had installed at the altar. And most of those allies, like the Virgin our Lady of Guadalupe or the Virgin of San Juan de los Lagos, um, uh, San Antonio, most of those allies were saints and aspects of the Virgin that had come down to them through the female line, through from their mother, from their grandmother, you know, a statue that was given on the day of a wedding. Now you take this statue of Guadalupe and go to your new home and make your own altar, mm. you know, that kind of thing. So I was very interested in that whole idea of lineage and a a sort of underground lineage that women, you know, kept, you know, going, you know, that was not institutionally um, uh, recognized. In fact, you know, a, a number of the women that I worked with back, this would have been in the late 70s and 80s, a number of these women had been accused of witchcraft, you know, for making these altars. Um, and my primary teacher, Chole uh, Pesina, Soledad Pesina, she lived right across the street from the church. She It was like within spitting distance. And she was accused of being a witch by a priest and she never went to church again.
1: Hmm. <laughs> uh, much more uh, we could say th- about that uh, just wanted to we only have time to make a plug here you are going to talk a bit about Brian Hutchison a, a Provo yes, artist yes okay I'm
2: so glad uh, so, now, so
1: maybe your 22nd version of okay, this
2: okay my 22nd twi- uh, version is a big shout out to Brian Hutchison um, in Provo he's a wonderful artist who I met in New York City and I became interested in his work because he um, he is um, he uh, is In the LDS Church, but he uses um, legends and phenomenon of uh, of being a Mormon and works on ephemeral aspects of um, um, of of. Mormonism. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to summarize in, in mm. my 20 seconds yeah. <laughs> here, but um, he does really beautiful work. I encourage you to uh, to look at his website. Um,
1: BrianHutchison.com.
2: Yeah, BrianHutchison.com, and that's mm-hmm. H-U-T-C-H-I-S-O-N, not right. Hutchinson, but right. Hutchison.
1: Hutchison. Yeah. Well, I encourage you to go out there. There's uh, some beautiful work there. Kay Turner's been my guest uh, for the hour. Thank you so much. Yes. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much, Tom. I enjoyed it.
1: And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. President Trump has focused on the debate over a border wall in recent months, but the State of the Union offers a chance to highlight other priorities.
3: Americans want to hear much more than immigration. They want to hear solutions to health care, to infrastructure, to data privacy, uh,
1: foreign policy. We'll preview the State of the Union this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Later today from 3 to 6.30 with your host, Shalane Smith-Needham, here on UPR Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines.
1: This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal. KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU-FM Logan. Also heard online at UPR.org. Take a break and join me down by the river for a moment of quiet musical contemplation. The water babbles over the rocks, a whippoorwill sings, and the breeze is gently whispering through the trees. Music by William Grant Still, inspired by a river, on the next performance today from APM.
0: Tonight at 9 on
2: Utah Public Radio.